Hey everybody, Andrew here. I am really excited about the opportunity to introduce you to a dear friend of mine and an amazing scholar, Dr. Ben Williams. Um, we have so much to talk about with this amazing individual, but as usual, I wanna start with his formal bio and then just launch right in into what I'm sure will be just a really rich time. So Dr. Ben Williams is an intellectual historian focused on the Indian religions and history of Shaiva Tantra. He's received extensive training in Indian philosophy, literature, and aesthetics in Sanskrit sources. Ben received a BA in religious studies from the University of Vermont, a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, and completed his PhD in the Department of South Asian Studies at Harvard University. He's currently serving as the assistant professor of Hinduism at Naropa University. Ben also serves on the Academic Advisory Council of the Mukta Bodha Indological Research Institute, which is dedicated to the preservation of scriptural and philosophical texts of classical India. Ben's doctoral thesis is on revelation and the figure of the tantric guru and the writings of Abhinavagupta, an eminent intellectual figure of medieval Kashmir. Building upon the study, one of his current research projects is charting the transmission of tantric traditions in South India that are indebted to non-dual Shaiva teachings and lineages that originally flourished in Kashmir. So Ben, my dear friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your heavy teaching and writing schedule to, to join us in our little nightclub. It's just a delight to have you. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be with you all and um, looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Um, likewise, I, I have to share with our audience that Ben has been an absolute treasure trove of information um, for me over the last year and a half since I got to know this amazing man. He, he's always sending me these unbelievable texts from the really the heart of the non-dual Shaiva, Tantra tradition, Kashmir Shaivism, and introduced me to a, a, a vast body of wisdom that I'm almost embarrassed to admit I had very little familiarity with. And the more Ben turns me on to this, the more I'm just blown away. Um, and the confluence, and I'm sure Ben and I will be chatting a little bit about this, the confluence between this kind of non-dual Shaiva tradition, which is really the origin of Buddhist tantric teachings, the parallels between that root source and what I spent most of my life studying with in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, um, it's just extraordinary. So we have a lot to talk about. But then, just for starters, um, talk to us a little bit about what what Shaiva Tantra is and whether, in fact, it's redundant to talk about it as non-dual Shaiva Tantra, um, because this is something perhaps maybe new to our listeners. And then also its connection to what perhaps is more famously known these days as Kashmir Shaivism. So can we start with some definitions and kind of infrastructure um, approaches to this before we launch into some details? Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Um, it's, it's not redundant to say non-dual Shaiva Tantra because the history of Shaiva Tantra um, was for actually many centuries um, a history of a tradition which presupposed that the deities, the Tantric deities that you know, revealed the scriptures and that one worshipped through various tantric liturgies or processes of ritual worship were in fact external to the practitioner. And so the early history of Shaiva Tantra is in fact dualistic. Mm -hmm. 
for the most part, with a few important exceptions. Um, and another thing about the early, earlier Shaiva Tantric tradition is that it's much less focused on philosophy and much more engrossed in ritual and practice. And so, although we can kind of tease out this dualistic orientation, the scriptures themselves are not actually that interested in hair-splitting metaphysical explorations and discussions. Um, but nonetheless, this kind of dualistic orientation animates them. Um, again, there's a couple passages in the earliest Shaiva Tantras that, that do kind of uh, seem to suggest a non-dual view, but we can say that generally speaking, they're dualistic. Um, before I, I speak about the emergence of non-duality, I want to make a really important caveat, though. Um, although, although these traditions are, for the most part, dualistic, a fundamental practice in all of them, which is really a central metaphor of Tantra, broadly speaking, is identification with a deity. Mm. And so even if these uh, deities were understood to be uh, external to the Tantric initiate and deities that must be gratified or pleased in order to kind of bestow grace, uh, liberation, etc. Um, all practice begins with a ritual identification with the deity, and that identification with the deity is an empowering practice, and it's seen as a preliminary for all tantric ritual, uh, a purifying preliminary. So this, because there's a lot of this this deep emphasis on identification with tantric deities, it's often confusing to, uh, to really see what the orientation is sometimes in the earliest tradition. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about that. Uh, should, yeah. I move, should I move to the emergence of non-duality? I hope that's kind of clarifying. No, that's, that's super helpful, but I want to um, right away talk just a little bit about deity principle and and really maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and how this relates to Shiva like who who is this uh this entity because you know in the buddhist tibetan buddhist tradition ben as you probably know some scholars go so far as to say that a th about a third of tantric or vajrayana buddhism is actually devoted to deity um, practice, um, mm -hmm. right. uh, you know, Yanam practice and deity principles. So right. it is an absolutely core ingredient of, of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. So talk to us a little bit about deity principle and mm -hmm. um, how Sh uh, Shiva actually, Shiva fits into that. Who is sure. this? Who is the <laughs> entity? <laughs> yeah, who is this Shiva? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's actually an illuminating contrast looking at Shaiva Tantric traditions and Buddhist Tantric traditions around this question of deity principle. In the Shaiva traditions, um, we have, uh, you know, we have a background in, in the broader Indian religions of a kind of focus at a certain moment on really three main deities, Shiva, Vishnu, and the goddess. And often the goddesses um, have forms which are consorts of either Shiva or Vishnu, or there's traditions where the goddess is kind of independent. And those traditions are called Shakta, devoted to Shakti. Um, so in these, in these earlier traditions, you know, in, in the more public forms of Shaivism, you know, Shiva is 
there's all these myth cycles about Shiva. You know, he has he has a wife, he has children, he goes through periods of being a yogi and an ascetic. He often lives in the wilds. Um, there's there's all these stories about this um, form of Shiva who often has different you know anthropomorphic forms. So his his skin is blue. He has snakes. He wears an elephant hide, etc., etc., etc. In Shaiva tantric traditions, from the very start, the very notion of deity shifts from those earlier traditions, mm -hmm. and the deity is understood. Uh, of course, the deity can always assume a form, but the supreme form of the deity in tantric traditions is actually the mantra. Mm -hmm. So the, the highest form of the deity is this kind of mantric form or this form of pure sound. And this relationship between deities and mantras, the idea that the deity is the embodiment of the mantra is really vital for understanding tantric practice because when you intone a mantra or if you deposit a mantra or if you repeat a mantra you're actually invoking the very sound form of the deity so that supreme sound is the source of how that deity then takes on a form and and creates the universe or reveals the Shaiva scriptures or the wisdom teachings of these, you know, these revelatory wisdom teachings. So that's, this is a very important distinction. Um, another just general point about the deity principle is that, as I just alluded to, Shiva, in a Shaiva tradition, Shiva is the source of the creation of the universe, the sustaining of that universe, and the dissolution of that universe. Mm -hmm. And Shiva is also the agent of grace or the kind of power of awakening. Um, and, and also one more act of Shiva, which is often listed in these five acts, is also the power of concealment and the cause therefore of ignorance, interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, so concealment and revelation or ignorance and revelation or grace um, and, and knowledge. So the, you could say that uh, Shiva in these traditions is a, a creator deity um, involved in, in the creative process. How that happens differs according to different Shaiva traditions. In some traditions, Shiva is simply the efficient cause and, and is actually separate from the world. It kind of instigates the unfolding process of creation, but is a separate reality. And that's in these more dualistic traditions. In other traditions, Shiva is both the efficient cause and the material cause, meaning it's the, rea it's the kind of the, the prime matter or the very material that manifests as and expresses as the universe. And that you see that more in non-dual traditions. Um, okay. So, so then, is it fair to say that it is only in the non-dual um, Shaiva Tantra traditions, and this could then maybe tie us back into Kashmir Shaivism, um, in that my understanding is that Kashmir Shaivism does principally represent the non-dual trajectory. But is it fair to say, then, that the deity principle becomes more of an archetype, in other words, less theistic and dualistic and more internalized, 
as kind of energetics um, that really are invoked in, in a certain sense with things like the recitation of mantra. Um, is that yeah. a fair thing to say that it is in the non-dual Shaiva Tantras that the deity principle becomes archetypal and that therefore a more, in a certain sense, immediate and accessible and esoteric? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's all a very uh, clear way of, of, of kind of marking that shift, that the deity becomes understood as a principle of consciousness, um, which is not separate from our very nature. And so you could say that is archetypal, but there's there's a there's a major shift with the emergence of non-dual traditions. It should be said that even in the dualistic traditions, although Shiva is seen as separate, um, we are all know every soul has a Shiva nature. Mm -hmm. So uh, and every soul has this kind of implicit omniscience and omnipotence, and and therefore is kind of equal to Shiva or similar to Shiva. So even in the dualistic traditions you have a very radical empowered notion of the very nature of the soul or the self. However, um, with the non-dual traditions, and maybe now I can just take that invitation and dive right in. Does that sound good? Perfect. Um, with the non-dual traditions, uh, we, have, we have the emergence of an idea that the plurality of selves, the plurality of perceivers or beings in this entire world, the actual manifest world itself and the deity are all dynamic expressions of one consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that consciousness is what we call the deity. And there's a complete continuum between that individual experience and the world, the individual self in the world. And so this emerges in a tradition that's called the Kula Marga. Mm -hmm. And it's in the Kula Marga where it, it, it emerges out of the traditions where the goddess really rises to the, the supreme deity, actually, and mm -hmm. Shiva is somewhat subordinated. So they're Shaiva traditions, but they're focused more on the feminine, the power aspect. It's in those traditions, which are the actually similar to Buddhist Tantra, you know, where you have the traditions of the Dakinis and the Yoginis, or the yogini tantras they're the traditions that are like the furthest away from the mainstream they're the most transgressive they're the most radical it's within those traditions that you have what we can call the internalization of the deities yeah. and so it's the internalization of shiva as this kind of all-pervasive consciousness that permeates everything and transcends it that that what it permeates as well but it's it there's really an emphasis on the internalization of the goddesses, on the powers of consciousness in this, Kaul, in this Kula Marga, this new path of the Kula. The Kula means um, the goddess clan. Mm. So mm. The, the clan of, of, of these mother goddesses, which have these retinues of yoginis or these kinds of power, these semi-divine beings. So this, the Kula also uh, has, a, it has an, a, hon, a homonym, another meaning, uh -huh. which is the body. And so there's this idea that the body now is the totality of these powers. And, the, and another meaning of Kula is totality. And so what happens is that there's this complete uh, internalization of the entire universe of 
this these earlier goddess traditions and they're all now seen as animating the, the practitioner's body which is now a microcosm of that macrocosm that's fantastic Ben, because this is exactly as, as you probably know this is the central tenet or one of the central tenets of what's referred to as the king of all tantras in buddhism which is the kala chakra mm. tantra mm. as within so without and, and and i have to throw this into the mix because I find it so incredibly beautiful from, from a, a kind of a Buddhist approach to this kind of discovery is that the, the further we go into ourselves, the less we find of ourselves and the more we find of others to the point mm -hmm. that when we go so mm -hmm. deeply into the very core of our being, we end up discovering that we are nothing, but in so doing, we simultaneously discover we're everything. And so in, in the most beautiful mm. way, mm. not just a labyrinth we walk into the center of ourselves, mm -hmm. we, it, the labyrinth also doubles as a Mobius strip. And so as you go to the very mm. center of your mm -hmm. being, you find yourself popping out as the cosmos. Your, your body is replaced mm. by the universe. Absolutely. And so that to me yeah. sounds utterly resonant with what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's not simply that the the macrocosm is re-envisioned as the body it's rather the the body in one's consciousness becomes a portal for starting to perceive the the vast greater world as all a part of who we are as a rising kind of within our awareness and so um in the uh, ishwar pratyabhigna karika utpaladeva says you start to see the universe as your body the entire universe is your body, um, meaning it's like it's all integrally related to who we are in this in this radically expanded notion of self. And that does, you know, necessarily involve the kind of the smaller thresholds or the kind of exclusive crystallized identities that we've held and cherished for so long to dissolve and to, to a certain extent, or at least to be kind of included in a much broader range of an emergent sense of self and an emergent affinity with all things. Yeah, that's really great. I, I want to come back to one thing before we, we, we flesh out with this, because you're pinging on so many incredibly provocative topics here. One thing I want to clarify for our audience that may be a little bit unfamiliar with things like deity principle, um, deity yoga, and the like, and, and that is that it's incredibly easy in fact, almost inevitable at first, and I think this, this is, of course, why it starts um, provisionally with the dualistic approach to to anthropomorphize and to reify these deities. And mm. I, I want to just have you uh, speak a little bit about that because, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, when one engages in these deity practices, as you know, Ben, it's a twofold fundamental practice, which is um, one, of course, is the recitation of, of the deity's mantra, which I love when you say that really is the essence of the deity. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But the other component, of course, is, is visualization. Mm -hmm. and, and what one teacher once told me, really beautiful, um, about the subtleties and the nuances of actual visualization practice, and how he said, how he said that cartoon, cartoon visualization leads to cartoon realization and so therefore help, help, help us step outside of the inevitable cartoon relationship to these because people mm -hmm. see a picture of deities like shiva 
and they think, yeah. oh, you know, this this thing is like frozen in space out there, or like some like yeah. like some doll. So, talk to us a little bit about the actual application, in addition to mantra recitation sure. of visualization sure. practice, and how to activate this archetypal energy within us. Sure. Well, you know, I mentioned this kind of this shift from a more ritualistic uh, appro- uh, kind of orientation in these tantric traditions to a focus on kind of non-dual knowing or, or Gnostic insight or kind of, you know, mystical forms of sudden awakening um, that, that really happens with the non-dual tradition. Nonetheless, um, absolutely, the kind of the fundament of tantric practice, which kind of bridges both of those, is working with mantra and working with visualization. Um, you know, this is a kind of the bread and butter of, of tantric uh, sadhana. Um, with, and they can be done on many levels. So like, similarly, the visualization can be done superficially with a lot of, you know, pre, prefab notions about what the deity is and a certain kind of caricature of this deity and an experience of being separate from that reality. Similarly, mantra can be practiced in, in ways where you're just rotely repeating it versus attuning oneself to its intrinsic, inherent, natural vibrancy as a kind of the luster and um, pulsation of consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. So with visualization, I mean, one thing I was thinking of as you were speaking, there's a number of different words for this. One is bhavana. Yeah. And bhavana is a very rich Sanskrit word, which has this sense of not only bringing something into being, that's kind of the sense of kind of constructing uh, the reality of this deity, but also having this relationship with what you're imagining, which is deeply empathetic. There's a sense of uh, a deep feeling or a deep empathetic relationship that emerges with what you're visualizing. And in tantric traditions, you know, when, when a mandala is revealed that has been animated with mantras and therefore with deities, there's, there's a number of ways in which in the text is described that you actually see these deities. And that can lead to, you know, a number of different reactions, like your hair standing on end, a sense of wonder. So I, I think one thing is, there's a couple of things. One is, what is your understanding of deity as you do these practices? And the second is, how, how deep is your capacity to empathetically engage and, and generate these deities and have a relationship with them? Yeah. And, 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 and how nuanced is the understanding behind that? Are you doing it as a sense of being a small entity or are you beginning with identification with the deity as the platform for the practice as well? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I love that interjection, Ben. That's super important. That, you know, one of the ways um, I work with this practice, and it, it obviously mm-hmm. it, it, a synonym for it, you pinged on this, is generation stage practice, which relates mm-hmm. beautifully to the term bhavana. You're actually generating mm-hmm. the deity and therefore actualizing it. But I, I often emphasize for myself and others that, again, it's very easy to misconstrue visualization as a purely kind of cerebral cognitive event where it's just as much so, uh, and of course this isn't a word, but you'll totally get it, it's equally feelingization, mm-hmm. equally 
tuning into this this visceral somatic embodied empathetic component mm. that's where the deity really comes to life within you and then you fundamentally realize you are the deity and and so yeah, exactly for, for our listeners i have to throw in just very briefly how this ties into um kind of the mid-range dream yoga practices mm. is that what we are referring to here with generation stage or deity yoga practice is something that can be uh, practiced um, in dream yoga with extraordinary potency because in the dream state, of course, mind becomes reality. And as the, the mind is shaped, formed, brought into being in the domain of the dream state, um, you can arise as the deity in an avenue that is um, more direct and immediate than one can actualize in so-called waking reality. And, and this mm -hmm. is of enormous importance in um, what are called the Bardo teachings, where mm -hmm. fundamentally one of the principal antidotes, if you believe in this sort of thing, that after one transitions out of a physical form into the, the after-death Bardo states, one of the principal remedies that one can do to negotiate the Bardos is actually to arise as the deity mm -hmm. uh, and then go through with that uh, kind of fearless kind of embodiment that then of course can guide you towards more volitional incarnation. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to throw that into the mix and come back to one technical thing. And then I want to turn all this incredibly rich topic into really practical applications. Um, but before we go there, I want to just ask you this, Ben, when you talk about um, Shiva Shiva as the all pervasive you know, imminent and transcendent consciousness. What what immediately comes to mind is is, of course, what philosophers refer to as monism. But I want to talk to you about the subtle difference between monism and non-duality. How do you see those two? Because one is an affirmation, one is a non-affirming negation. And I find myself a little bit squeamish when anything is affirmed, even a monistic consciousness. I I actually prefer more Pangaka <laughs> Majamaka approach of right of deconstruction and non-affirming negation. So talk to us again, this is a little bit subtle, but we have pretty <laughs> sophisticated listeners in our audience. Okay. How does this land with you and, and um, titrate those two terms out for us in relationship to um, non-dual Shaiva Tantra? Sure. Well, I think there is, there is a different emphasis in Shaiva Tantra, in non-dual Shaiva Tantra than we see in non-dual teachings in Buddhism. Um, so, I mean, it would be interesting to just tease this out together. Um, you know, there is a sense of monism, um, but it's, it's a sense of monism where the, the one reality is, it's a dynamic, creative consciousness here in the non-dual teachings, right? Mm -hmm. And that consciousness is described as an agent of creation. And what it means to be an agent is to have sovereignty or freedom. That goes back to the panini. The, what an agent of action is, is one who's independent of the action. And this in non-dual Shaivism, which comes to be called Kashmir Shaivism, even though there were dualistic traditions in Kashmir, so it's a bit of a misnomer, but in non-dual Shaivism, which we refer to as Kashmir Shaivism uh, in a popular sense, um, there's this beautiful teaching called Swatantriya Vada, and it's really the doctrine of radical freedom. Mm -hmm. And there's the idea that there's, there's no necessity 
impinging upon consciousness from outside of it. That it's, it's completely self-effulgent and self-creating, and it creates uh, just because it's its very nature to create. And what creating means is self-differentiating into this manifold universe. Mm -hmm. And part of what being an agent is, is having this power. And, part, and it's actually, this goes back to our, our question about visualization. Um, this power is described as a kind of creative form of imagination, that this consciousness is creatively imagining this universe and becoming it at the very same time. And it's, it's through this agency, which is described as three distinct powers in Abhinava Gupta's tradition. The power of kind of creative intentionality, Icha Shakti, the power of cognition, and the power of action. And so, in a certain sense, we are being visualized by consciousness. <laughs> and so when we visualize deities, that we're actually, <laughs> we're participating within consciousness's natural ability to create and to visualize and to imagine ad infinitum. Um, that I I think I feel like this this is actually how the Shaiva traditions differentiate themselves from um, Advaita Vedanta mm -hmm. is that they describe this consciousness as Aishwarya or Maheshwarya as as having this kind of nature of being an agent and actually being the and being dynamic being the source of all action being the source of all cognition, being the source of all desire or all intention. And for, for, for Advaita Vedanta, their kind of form of non-dualism, what Brahman, what the absolute reality is, is a reality that's forever beyond change and action. It's immutable. And since it's beyond action, therefore, it's, it's a way of saying this is how you go beyond karma, right? The kind of being enmeshed in, in cause and effect in all of the conditioning that falls out from that. And the Shaiva response is actually no. There's a deep continuity between consciousness and the world. Beautiful. And so therefore, there's this kind of radical imminence in their understanding of non-duality. And that, that this reality, it, it threads through everything, it permeates everything, it expresses everything in the same way that an artist creates.